Hello and welcome to I've Never Seen, the now rebranded podcast where I watch through various franchises at the moment, Star Trek, and talk about them for hours because that's interesting. Uh, I'm Sam at never underscore seen underscore Trek on Twitter. I'm Patrick at uh, Angears42 on Twitter. And I am Jesse at Sudden Butt on Twitter. I miss we're talking about TNG series two. Uh, season two, I should say, for the Americans. Sorry. I'll get get moaned at if I call it a series, won't I? Um, yeah, so uh Patrick, you normally sort of start us off. Oh uh, sure. Um I mean, so we talked about uh or I talked a lot last time about how season one was like this sort of strange uh frontier for me um as a fan kind of of the show from season three on then going back to the jumpsuit no beard tasha yar era um and then season two is a really interesting little bridge um because you focus on like the uniforms and how some of the scripts are still kind of awkward um you know you definitely can sort of lump it together with season one um, but it, in a lot of really important ways, um, the show has already uh, found itself. So there's there's it's no accident that the cliche sometimes for a show finding its footing after its first couple of years is growing the beard, uh, referring to Jonathan Frakes uh, growing a beard and uh, being asked to keep it as he continued to play Riker. Um, you also have uh, Worf, uh, did, technically did not get a promotion, still Lieutenant Junior Grade, but um, fully stepping into uh, Yar's role with a, with a gold shirt running security. Uh, and then one of the most profoundly transformative changes, getting rid of the chief engineer Derby and giving LeVar Burton a promotion and an improved part as uh, being in charge of the engine room. And, you know, you notice in the first season, if you go back and look, he never shows any interest in or proficiency with the engines. So it's just, you know, roll with it. Let's do it. Um, And it's and it's just uh, absolutely an improvement. We then um, unfortunately have uh, the loss, the temporary loss of uh, Gates McFadden um, due to uh, shenanigans we probably won't get into behind the scenes. Um, fortunately, it was not a, uh, a forever loss because of more changes behind the scenes. And so overall, it wound up seeming like, you know, hey, this is Starfleet. Sometimes people transfer in, sometimes people transfer out. You know, she kind of kept that foot in the show because Wesley is still part of the show. Um, and then we got uh, Dr. Pulaski uh, about who your mileage may vary, but uh, it seems pretty clear the mission statement was female Dr. McCoy. And they went so far as to get a recurring original series guest star to play the part. Uh, and I think that kind of sets the stage. Some some threads get pulled together in a mostly episodic season. We get... Um, uh, continuing exploration of data's nature and the nature of holograms. And then finally, of course, the, uh, the alien cyborg menace that was vaguely hinted at through season one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, basically mainly just hinted at at the very end of season one. I don't think there was a huge amount of, of sort of foreshadowing. It felt very much like it was a thread set up to be pulled, but not, not, not like they didn't necessarily know where they were going with it until series two. I don't necessarily think, but sure, that's fair. 
Um, but yeah, it's interesting you say about like, um, obviously the reputation that these series have and you said about growing the beard and all that. I was really surprised watching through series two just how good so much of it is. I mean, th- th- there are there are some absolute <laughs> rubbish episodes and we'll definitely get to those in a bit. But like with the reputation that series one and series two have, and obviously I said last month, series one surprised me that it, it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. Series two felt like a good series of sci-fi. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm obviously, I'm, I'm aware that well, at least according to most people, the show gets better going forward. But it's not bad in any way in series two, I don't think, other than those odd episodes. Yeah, I fully agree. And it, it feels like for season one, I mean, there was this famous Roddenberry uh, directive, right? No interpersonal conflict on the bridge. Like, you, they can't, the story can't be that they're having a conflict between two characters on the bridge for personal reasons, right? So they, they almost, by necessity, managed to work their way around that in a lot of the season two episodes, right? Where they give characters conflicts that are definitely personal but it doesn't come from anybody else on the ship necessarily or it doesn't start that way and then it becomes more of that sort of a thing so you know for instance troy right away has this very traumatizing experience in the child but that draws the crew in in a way because they're her family right but it doesn't give her conflict of a personal nature because of the crew so it gets around that little rule and it you know the episode is definitely weird and creepy but there are a lot of episodes in this season that use a similar mechanic right they go well what if the conflict came from air quotes inside the ship but not inside the crew right so you have elementary my dear data you have uh the Okana, the Okana, Okana, Okana episode. I don't, I can never remember how to say his name. You have the Ira Graves episode. You've got the measure of a man. There's so many deeply personal stories in this season. And I think that's part of what makes it feel like you were saying, like a really great season of sci-fi because you're getting to know the characters and the strength for me of Star Trek has always been when you can let yourself be immersed and when you can let yourself relate to the characters, right? I think that's why most of the bridge crew looks human. <laughs> um, yeah. But if you can see yourself in those characters, it really helps you enjoy the series. And I think kind of arguably for the first consistent time, se- season two is where they got to do that. And, and it's, it's one of my favorite seasons, honestly. The Measure of a Man episode in particular is the gateway drug that i used on my lovely wife to get her into star trek because she loves um, legal dramas right she loves courtroom dramas things like that and i went oh i've got the perfect episode to do this and halfway through she paused it and she was like okay so is this guy gonna be a jerk the whole episode and i was like oh she's totally hooked this is <laughs> we're ready to go yeah, and yes yes <sighs> Oh my gosh, yeah. Bruce Maddox, but I mean, you will even get character development from Bruce Maddox. It's it's such, I I have to say, I'm a huge Trekkie, so maybe take my opinions with a grain of salt, but I love season two. It doesn't have quite the, like, sheer consistency of maybe, like, three through six and somewhat seven. Um, and then it doesn't also have the like off the wall gonzo bonkersness <laughs> of the original series. Like with the original series, you were taking the highs with the lows. You know, it was just 
Wait, whatever sorry. was going on, you knew it was the ride. And um, so season two has definitely got some sort of fish nor fowl episodes where it's like, how much, how much actually happened here? Yeah. But, um, but then when it's, when it's, when it's going, it's going. And um, you get some, when you get an episode, that's an all time great, like measure of a man or Q who um, you're really, you're really there. Um, but you know, there are some things that probably wouldn't pass muster in future seasons, you know, shades of gray, obviously, um, ladder. Um, I think we can mostly agree on the ones that don't work. Yeah. But, you know, even something like Okina is like, you can, you know, it's sort of like you're, you're laughing with that episode a little bit and you're laughing yeah. at that episode a little bit. <laughs> it's, it, to me, that episode is Star Trek does a Star War. Right, like let's have a Han Solo and see what happens. And I, you know, it's not quite that simplistic, but I, I did really like it. And the episode um, Samaritan Snare with the Packlets, uh, that one, there are parts of it that verge on uncomfortable. Right, like there's some maybe some intellectual elitism going on, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah. But it's it's I feel like it's one of those episodes that has a soft spot in my heart because it it does have a little bit of humor in it and it's not too mean-spirited for the most part and you feel Jordy in this weird like I'm a professional and I have no toolkit for these people like socially and and I feel like there's your relatable moment right like I know how to do my job but I do not know how to deal with the people at my job like that's a pretty relatable thing and you know Star Trek as the as the workplace drama is another thing that works pretty well He's the IT guy. Yeah. <laughs> I think, he look, goes over well, there and turns things off and on. Yeah. But I think it's like, like you say about having these soft spots for episodes. And Patrick just mentioned when you were like listing the episodes that maybe don't work as much, you mentioned up the long ladder. And yeah, yeah it, it, it's a bad episode. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw quite that controversial <laughs> take out there. But I do have a soft spot there, like some some of the guest characters are really good. And some of the storytelling is really good. It's not even the bad episodes have their moments. I think, and that that's that's something that even series one couldn't necessarily say that for every episode. Yeah, and then one thing I I honestly like. Um, I was looking through some of um Keith DeCandido's reviews and reminding me is um Okona and Long Ladder and uh, even Loud as a Whisper. Some of these other ones. For considering when it's coming out and when it's airing, this is a pretty sex positive show. Like, and not in like a, a titillating way, like we're gonna dress the guest star in fishnets at all. Just it's sort of showing a social future that's a little bit off kilter from like freaking moral majority America. I mean, Reagan was still the president for the first part of this season, for gosh sake. Yeah, I mean, it's anybody that watches a lot of Star Trek will come to understand that, you know, while the series has always had its issues, it has, it feels like most of the people involved with it have always wanted to be progressive with it and, you know, push the social boundaries and some of the TV regulation boundaries too. And, and this, this season, you know, we have that, that whole, 
balanced, right? I don't know. It's not a balance. I'd say there are more good episodes than bad this season, right? But like you said, there are stumbling points and we, we have to acknowledge those. But there is definitely something to be said for even the attempt considering like you said when it came out for them to even attempt to do some of these allegories is is at least respectable i think yeah they didn't execute uh 100% every time but you know how many shows do and and i really feel like the beard is is such a great contribution you know to like the whole cultural world you know growing the beard when a show gets good and things like that and it's just it really is this this series you can see okay this is when it really starts to take off and i man it's hard for me not to just keep gushing so if you guys have some structure well, so, you're saying, so the key was growing the beard not popping the collar right <laughs> although the uniforms do get much much better for season three which which oh, yeah. yeah sam knows as well <laughs> which i uh interesting i so i was watching uh, it's slightly off tangent, but it is related. I promise. I was watching a DVD that came in a box set that I've got of the, of the original series movies, and it's a DVD of something called The Captain's Summit, which was uh, Nimoy, Shatner, uh, Stewart, and Frakes just sat around a table chatting with um, with Whoopi Goldberg. Oh wow! And um, it's really interesting because it's I think an hour, well, an hour and ten minutes long, but there's Cats in the middle for about an hour long, and but at one point they're they're talking about these awful, awful outfits and sort of joking that uh, Shatner and Nemo had it easy. And uh, Stuart men- mentions he said the sort of the, the spandex type outfits of the first couple of seasons was only replaced for series three because he went to his car- his chiropractor apparently turned around and said if they don't replace those uniforms, you've got to quit the show. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a, a medical thing. I know for I think several of the crew members. Yeah, because wow. Stuart Stuart's back just couldn't handle it apparently. Because because they were saying, well, I didn't realize this either. This is a, a Roddenberry thing apparently that everyone's outfits for those first two seasons were intentionally made a size too small. Mm-hmm. Because in Roddenberry's mind, in the future, clothes wouldn't have wrinkles and creases. And the only way to make sure there were never any wrinkles and creases was to make them so small that they physically couldn't. <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't be so hung up on the appearance of their clothing. They would be like, hey, if it functions, it's good enough. Exactly. Another, another thing I've heard is that he he didn't want there to be zippers in the future. So with like a couple of 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 a couple times it's missed, but actually you very rarely see because obviously they're sealed with zippers, but you very rarely see anybody actually unzip any of these. And, you know, there's sort of a, okay, you're committing to future space clothes, fabric, and things. But, there, you know, as as we know, there's not really an excuse to compromise onset safety for your weird conviction that they wouldn't, would or wouldn't have something in the future. <laughs> of course, the, the example from my other favorite franchise is, uh, you know, Carrie Fisher uh, going to George Lucas and saying, you know, in the first Star Wars, saying, hey, you know, I, I this this is kind of awkward to run around in this outfit when I'm not wearing a bra. And she she says, he, he turned to me with total conviction. He said, there are no bras in space. Like, <laughs> like, like, like he'd been there. <laughs> Man, nerds. <laughs> acting under the assumption that there is no alien life, he's not 
Yeah. The other thing that I got to point out about season two, as far as like varying quality goes, right? So we have this episode, the Royale, and it's not great. Uh, there's some fun pieces to it, but they're stuck in this weird casino on a planet and maybe it's based on a terrible pulpy book and then they find out oh yes this whole thing is actually meant to be a bad story so it's, <laughs> it's like the most meta thing ever right i they, do they, really enjoy the episode exactly for that revelation and it's, yeah. it's almost like a 2001 reference if dave bowman got to write about how he was tormented <laughs> by this terrible hotel that he was locked in for eternity I do, I, do, I do think there was one point, if I remember correctly, when I was live reading that episode where one of the characters reads a passage of the book and says how awful it is. And my comment was, um, how did the director's notes on this episode end up in the script? It could be a cop-out. You could call it a cop-out. But it's like I said, it, in hindsight, you can do it as a hilarious meta thing. And I'm sure in the well, moment it was probably very much TNG's take on a piece of the action yeah. in the original series. But um, I saw the Royale first. So it wins. Yeah, but it, like, a piece of the action is a good episode. <laughs> oh, I the Royale's fine. Like, if you're going to say Okina's fine, the Royale's fine. The Royale's say it's fine. fine. It's actually good. <laughs> exactly. I agree with that. And then, of course, you have, I mean, Kalar from, from the Emissary episode is one of my favorite TNG characters, personally. I, I, yeah, we touched on that. I completely agree. She is yeah. absolutely incredible. I'm going to hit the brakes. We, we've done our overview. Um, let's let's kind of go like in, in little blocks of episodes right here. Um, so we kick off with uh, The Child and Where Silence Has Lease. So, any any feelings or thoughts to discuss about those two? Well, I'm, I, I want to start off by saying, uh, long-time listeners will know that I do not have the best memory, uh, especially when it comes to episode titles. I do remember most of the episodes from this series. I have just had to Google where Silence has least because I have no clue what happens in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, take that how you will. That's the one where they're trapped in, like, a void, right? And Data goes, got no idea what that is, dude. And... <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of taken aback by that. And then it's a big face in space. It's uh, I think, right? Yeah. See, and, and he, he's played in one of my favorite uh, trivia instances. He's played by the guy who's the snotty psychiatrist in the Terminator movies. Right. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So I this made such an impression on me as a kid. Um, that I was kind of amazed re-watching it that Nagilam only shows up in the third act. And most of it is played as this mystery. So it's really yeah. uh, a lot like the immunity syndrome at first in the original series. Because in both of them, they're exploring this weird dark area of space that's dark and full of darkness. And then it takes a left turn in the third act. And the only difference is what exactly the left turn is. Um, but Nagilam is such a fascinating character because of just how much, you know, he basically has Q-level power in this little area of space. And he just just does not give up. Now, if they had tied uh, him into Q in some way, like... You know, maybe maybe when they meet Q, if Q had said something like, "How did you like Nagilam?" What would you have thought of that? Eh, you know, um, they're, I think they're too different. I think he's not. Yeah, there's been novel series that try to tie a lot of these energy beings together, and like it's kind of fun, but like it 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 does it does break. Um, 
I think, plausibility a little bit. And then, and like, you know, can you imagine Q being fascinated with death? Like, what does he care? You know, he can he can just, like, reach out with mental powers oh. and Google everything on Earth and know everything. Yeah, I meant more like a sort of like, you know, he had encountered him and he has some sort of, like, slight opinion on him or something. Not necessarily that it was oh, like a one-off creation yeah. of his. I mean, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah like, that guy was a loser. But I can I'm, see them I'm doing that in lower decks, honestly. That's a lower oh, deck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. No, I, I think you're talking about, you were saying, like, the various cues uh, or beings that have been sort of retconned as cues. I mean, obviously, I'm not very far into the entire franchise, but I think the only character I can think of who I can see, and I know has been, but I could seasonably see being retconned as a cue is Trelane. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think there's any other characters that I think of and go, yeah, that could be a member of the queue. Yeah, I think in general, Trek has avoided the temptation to tie too many things back to the queue. Like, then the queue show up, it's like, all right, you're getting the full queue experience, and then, and then they're out. I mean, yeah. really the biggest impact they have on the Federation in general we see this season, um, which is, which is you know, to, to introduce them to an actual, like, physical threat. And a lot of times the queue stories kind of steer away from that. But, um, you know, as far as the child and, and Silence has least, you know, they're kind of like, they're kind of invested in introducing this new status quo, I think. And there's a similar sort of duology at the beginning of season three when we get there. Um, so the child is basically like, this is everybody's new job and this is all the new cast members. And then we're going to do a recycled TOS plot where Troy has a child and then doesn't really do anything for the whole episode. And then everything resolves itself. Uh, you can tell it's probably not a favorite of mine. <laughs> That's the child. I didn't like it that much. Um, I thought Where Silence Has Lease is an interesting little horror movie of an episode. But again, a it's strange and a little off-putting that we don't meet Nagilam until almost the end of the episode. So not that much interaction with it actually happens. I don't think the mystery was interesting enough to carry as much of the episode as it does. There's also some element of, oh, so Picard is able to speak for the death wishes of civilians. Like there are some questions that come up there. Cause he says something like we would all rather die. Yeah. And it's like, um, maybe there's some people that are like, you know what? No, if he only wants 40 of us, maybe 40 of us could volunteer. Maybe there's some people like that on board. You don't know. It doesn't seem like they asked. Yeah. But, you know, the the, the thing where they create a great villain and then don't address a couple of questions sort of runs through the series, you know, because they, they all immediately after we have elementary dear data where LaForge accidentally creates Moriarty sort of implying that the computer and the holodeck are maybe omnipotent like you can just say <laughs> make somebody that can beat data and the computer goes okay here like could, doesn't that mean he could also say build me a time machine like, yeah it's 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 interesting because I don't think it's 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 completely thrown out as like a continuity error later on because the issue comes up again and again that the non-sapient computers can nonetheless host sapient life yeah. and that is actually a recurring theme particularly with the holograms and we already got that with a minuet and this is kind of the next uh, advancement i think we go from love interest to 
villain and that well quote unquote villain by the end of the episode which is one of the nicest touches about it um and then eventually we'll get to series regulars that are based on this same premise um so you know as as much as there I, I think the problems with the concept are kind of recognized and explored in universe even if live 12 impossible things before breakfast this is something that i think that was maybe a bit inconsistent in this series though is sort of how exactly the holodeck works because obviously like i mean like you say this this episode um damage to do that so you've got this sort of the, the holodeck being able to create sentient life and then it, it almost not like not a retcon because it didn't get rid of it this but like when you get to and we'll touch on the episode more later when you get to manhunt and you've got picard in the holodeck and in the um I can't remember the detective's name. Um, no. Dixon Hill. Uh, Dixon Hill. That's the one. When he's in the Dixon Hill thing, and he's trying to relax, but he can't relax because the computer isn't capable of creating a Dixon Hill situation that isn't violent. <laughs> so you can create sentient life, but you can't create a peaceful noir scene. Yeah, you can't improv, but you can give life. <laughs> yeah, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I'll be honest, but. Well, it was but yeah, I mean, sort of touching on, I mean, it, we're moving on sort of to this next block of episodes now with Elementary Dear Data and Outrage is kind of loud as a whisper. Um, I think this, 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 this is a good block of episodes. Hmm. Yeah, a, good, a good run of, of decent episodes here. I think Elementary Dear Data is probably up there as one of the top three or four in the series, potentially. O'Connor is fun. It's maybe not the smartest episode, but it's fun. <laughs> and I thought loud, loud as a whisper for something that, that, that came out again. So this is when we're still late eighties at this point, mm. aren't we? It had a. It, I don't. I, I'm, I wasn't around in the eighties. I'm quite young as far as Star Trek fans go. But it feels to me like the approach to disability in television in that era was far behind how the deafness of the character was handled in this episode. Yeah, I would agree. And I think one of the most noteworthy things about it is that the actor uh, who plays uh, Riva really is deaf. Um, and he pitched the episode like he called Star Trek and he was like, hey, you're Star Trek. And he got to the end and the end was, you know, they used techno babble to like give him his voice. And he said, no, that's bullshit. Here's how you should end the episode. And they rewrote it for him. So it was kind of this this it was fully informed by the disability and the disabled person that it was about, which is something that we see so seldom even today. Well, and I really yeah. appreciated that moment that Picard, you know, it, it reads as awkward on screen and I think it's meant to, but the moment where Picard puts his hand on his, on Riva's face and says, Hey, we're, we're trying, like, we're all in this together. We are going to figure this out. It's like, yes, Picard did that in a weird, probably like socially not acceptable way, but he was, he, he had no way left to communicate that he just wanted to be helpful. And he, it was like desperate attempt at connection. And I, I think that was one of the more affecting moments for me personally in season two, just because it was like, you you know knowing the background of it knowing that the deaf actor helped create the episode it's like it really adds this layer of 
personal, I think, relatability to it because it's it, it's like true emotion there in that scene. And I, I actually really like that episode. It has some cheesy pieces to it, but I think it's a lot of fun. And to your point, yeah, very progressive for the time. And just, it's, I think it remains an interesting idea. I wouldn't mind seeing Riva again, uh, like you had said earlier about Lower Decks. I think there are some great jokes they could make with Riva on Lower Decks. Well, in the the part because you know some of these I I, I have uh, memories of seeing as a as a kid, um, and you know not in the first run because I was too young, but in seeing them as as reruns a little bit later. Um, and of course, what haunted me was the the scene where the chorus is is killed, or should I say, obliterated, because. It, it is such a shock because they've been, they were really effectively built up the whole episode. And so you think the, whatever the resolution is going to be, is going to involve them somehow. Um, and when I was a kid seeing that, you know, and I was pretty sensitive to some of that stuff as a kid, but rather than being like grossed out, it happened so quickly that I think like the horror kind of sank in and it re- like, I wasn't really paying attention to the episode until that happened. And then I was like, Whoa, I was super invested in how Riva and Troy and Picard were going to solve this impossible problem. Um, but then rewatching it then later, years later as an adult, um, what struck me is how it's an action scene and it's a murder and it's a tragedy, but it also has this, this hopefulness to it because it ends with one of these so-called unenlightened aliens, like basically bellowing up at the sky. No, we're better than this. Don't leave us. And yeah. just that is the centerpiece of the, of the episode to me. One of the few instances maybe of the show where we get that uh, those hints at human optimism through non-human eyes. You know, usually mm-hmm. those those moments of real connection with human emotion are reserved for the humans on the show, which is understandable and not necessarily unfair, but it was well done in this one, I think. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, next... On deck, I think, is a Shitsoid Man, Unnatural Selection, and A Matter of Honor. And I, I like two of those. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued to know which two, because I think there's one definitely good episode there, and the other two, I think, are both middling, so... Um, I mean, I, you know, to be honest, the Shitsoid Man is not on my rewatch list that often, but I do like it for having a great guest star and for letting Brent Spiner flex his muscles in a way that is increasingly an asset to the show. Um, And also for having Dr. Salar who only appears once, but becomes such a cult character that she's, you know, get is like the third or fourth most important character in the new frontier series of novels. There's like 20 of those. And then of course they brought Susie Plaxon back to play Kalar. Um, and just this interesting idea of like, Oh, right. There is a whole medical staff. It's not just Pulaski and a bunch of nurses. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like they went, people already don't like Pulaski. Let's put another medical personnel somewhere in this show. Um, I'm, I'm one of the people that actually, I, it's not that I like Pulaski better than Crusher. I would never say that. Um, but I do enjoy some of the episodes with her just because it is such a different spin on the medical officer for the enterprise, um, for the enterprise G anyway. 
and it has like you were saying at the beginning it has this weird quality of being like oh the show is this close to figuring out exactly who it is mm. and there's like a couple of pieces this season that are like Whoa, maybe they could and then the next season, like, oh, okay they did all right cool <laughs> Well, the unnatural selection is the first and really one of the few Pulaski episodes. Um, and I, it, it, except for the, the bits of the very beginning and end with the USS Lantry, I really got to say it does nothing for me. That's just kind of a take on a original series script, isn't it? Well, it's in that it's got one character aging. Yeah. Um, but then they, the way that the transporter solves the problem just opens up can after can of worms. <laughs> and then the, you know, the weird, I guess it's supposed to be squicky, but like the weird plastic, perfect children. Um, and actually it's, you, it wasn't really explicitly established yet, but if you did this episode now, you'd have to have a lot more dialogue about how they're essentially explicitly breaking uh Federation laws that are meant to create to prevent more cons from being created to right. shorthand. <laughs> and that could have been, that actually would have enhanced the episode a lot because it would have been a lot more obvious that like, Hey, they're doing something really freaky and bad out here. And we have to sort of figure out if we're going to turn them in or what. Yeah. That was something that sort of, when I was watching it, I was sort of thinking, well, well like what are these, like this can't, well, maybe it can be sanctioned by the by Starfleet, but it, it just or the Federation. It just seemed very sort of not not necessarily wrong, but something that would have been taboo. Absolutely, not explored at all in the episode. Yeah, it's like they they would have had no choice but to address it a bit later in the show's life when the framework is more established. Um, but yes, and also I think it's. A flaw of this one, and also much later up the long ladder, essentially the idea of like voiceless clones without personality uh, seems very outdated today when we've got, you know, shows like The Clone Wars, when the whole premise is, you know, just because you've been created in a lab doesn't mean you're not people. And it feels like this season of Next Generation hadn't really settled on that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, it took them took them two more episodes to decide that. Well, okay, yeah, in a sense, it's a, it, well, you know, they're always inconsistent. They'll they'll have an episode about yeah. how androids are people, and then they'll have to completely relearn every lesson with clones are people or holograms are people. But yes, I do see what you're saying. Or Riker will hate somebody's religious jewelry for some reason. Wait, what's that from? Oh, uh, that's from much later in the series. I don't want to. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, okay but then we have klingons and klingons are awesome and we also yeah. have uh chris collins and chris collins is awesome so uh right episode is so fun yeah Sorry. matter of honor riker's field trip it's such a fun episode that it doesn't have to be sort of uh it is quite clever at times but it doesn't have to be clever about anything or smart it's just a fun romp with Klingons. Yes, absolutely. And it's, uh, I think the, the brilliant beat of this episode is that they didn't assign Worf 
And it's just shows the, the, the cool confidence that this crew has. They're like, we'll get to tell the Wharf Klingon story later, right? But we're, we're going to throw Riker in because that just seems like a hoot, you know, him run around the ship, uh, threaten to have threesomes with folk. <laughs> and, and it is, and like you said, it, it starts very much as this like day in the life style episode. And it really kind of lands there too. And it has that perfect amount of like third act escalation where the moron in charge of the Klingon ship is like, we've been attacked. I'm going to go try and destroy this uh, giant battle cruise ship over here. Um, and I think that's a theme that they've referred to a few times of just the Klingon system producing a, an unqualified commanders. But then of course this comes at the, the confidence porn I always say is an integral part of TNG's formula that we're just waiting to see how Riker is going to run rings around this guy without actually violating his oath. Yeah. It was, it was brilliant to see like, and this is, this is a compliment to Frakes in particular, the way that he's portrayed as simultaneously having the knowledge and knowing what he's doing, but almost being out of his depth at the same time. Mm. Like, like he knows how to act. There's the whole scene of him basically beating the shit out of the second officer for questioning him. It's like, he knows what he's doing, but at the same time, like you have the scene uh, at dinner and he's, he's clearly at the same time, very uncomfortable. Uh, it's a nice sort of dynamic there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like you can, and, I, and I've been an exchange student a long time ago. I didn't have a lot of fun with it, but like you can read about a place endlessly and still have no social understanding or context once you get there. But Riker was just super lucky. He he got there and he, he went, oh, they operate on sarcasm? I can operate here. Because <laughs> well, they're not that much like Worf. And it's another thing that they're they're confident enough not to have to say, but they're just they're just building this up and to to pay off in spades in season three and four and all of DS9, etc. Yeah. Uh, well then we're on measure of a man, which I feel like I've we we do have that special episode and I've kind of said what I want to say about it, so I'll I'll let y'all kinda kinda pick that up. Yeah, I'll just I'll just quickly uh Check out there's a bit of promo. So the um, commentary tracks that we record, they're normally a Patreon exclusive, uh, one a month for each season of the show. Uh, because of various reasons that I won't go into now, the commentary track for Measure of a Man has been made public and has been put up as a special edition of the podcast. So anyone who's interested in uh, listening to me and Patrick watching that live uh, and commentating on it as we go, give that a listen um, hopefully it's interesting. I thought it was quite fun. The hustle is real. <laughs> and then go subscribe to the Patreon. Hey, next to Well, and the thing about the episode, I think that uh, I think my favorite thing about it is that it's it's accessible to people who are not Star Trek fans, right? Mm. It, it's it's accessible and well written and well paced and well acted in a way that you can just show it to people maybe not even sci-fi fans, just people of well-written legal dramas can enjoy it. Now, I I had mentioned earlier, that was actually how I got my wife to watch Star Trek. And it was like, you know, she immediately was a huge Data fan and that's now her favorite character. But the episode 
really does ask a you know some some deep questions and i guess that um the dialogue where picard finally closes his case and says you know this you're talking about slavery um it to to hear you know behind the scenes that Whoopi goldberg had a hand in that line and explained to patrick stewart dude this is this is the allegory that they're going for use this word is it, it adds this layer of depth to the episode and I, I would argue the entire show really because it's not the first or last time that they will take swings like that it adds this layer of depth that i think makes it accessible to the aforementioned non-star trek maybe non-sci-fi fans and that i think is it's one of the strongest episodes of star trek ever in my personal opinion absolutely true no i yeah completely agree with that as well i think it to touch on what you're saying about like it being very much a legal drama rather than an episode of sci-fi. I think that's something that, I mean, the, the original series did this incredibly, that so many episodes that are just barely sci-fi at all because they they land on a planet and then a different genre plays out on that planet. Um, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've got the Nazi episode, you've got the Romans episode, you've got the, um, all of these, the, the gangsters episodes. And Next Generation, I, I feel like as, as, brilliant as it is has not been doing that as much i know as it goes on it sort of plays with these ideas with the holodeck a lot but this is very much i think one of the best early examples of star trek going okay we're a sci-fi show where we have a sci-fi setting but here's something completely different it's exploring the, the natural alienness of the setting to the audience they don't they don't go to a crazy planet you know, it's it's the situation that causes the the drama and the uncertainty from the characters, and and that's just a really profound thing to do. I think you know what they call a a bottle episode in a few years, and how sometimes those are the strongest uh, episodes of the series, and it's a natural culmination of how they're having these almost like. You know, a lot. You know, a lot of these 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 episodes so far are a little bit underwritten as far as like you know what kind of threat is affecting the ship, and they're having more fun just exploring the nature of being on the ship itself. And this is a great extension of that activity they've been engaging in. Like we've had one status quo of Federation society for a year and a half now, and now we're actually going to say, oh can can this continue yeah, yeah. that's a, a beautifully like i think that's what makes part of what makes star trek relevant no matter when it comes out is that it has the ability to look at itself and you know sometimes offer critique of itself and you know okay we don't always hit our mark but we're usually trying what you know what what can we try next let's try another big swing and it, and it's I think it's admirable for any property to do that and for it to be a property that's this ingrained in pop culture is, is excellent. Well, and I, I think that I'm, I'm pretty, I'm like 99% sure that Gene did not pitch or contribute to this episode in any meaningful way, but it does feel very resonant with um, a lecture of his I heard um, where he's talking about a quest or tape. So his, his old pilot about an Android 
and how he had a subplot where the android had to seduce a human woman. And he said the executives kept like circling that like sharks, like, you know, we don't think he can do this. And he's like, why can't I do this? You know, this, that, and the other thing. And one of them, the way he tells it, and you know, these stories are always very self-serving, but uh, the way he tells it, one of the executives finally like slammed the table with the heel of his palm and said, damn it, man, would you want your sister to have sex with a robot? And and Gene says, you know, I, I was struck in that moment by the fact that, you know, just this one idea I had had caused another human being to invent an entirely new form of prejudice. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of that attitude there that if, if we could create something like data, we would need to ask ourselves if we deserved it. Yeah. Our scientists would be so concerned with whether or not they could that they may not stop to consider whether or not they should. Ooh, that's a great line. <laughs> oh, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. I was, was going to say, yeah, that's... that's um, <laughs> about the only line from that film I could call it, I think. <laughs> well, and, and just one more thing. I, I knew I would, I would... I said I would let this episode go, but one more thing. Um, you know, I do have memories of a lot of these episodes from when I was a little kid, and, you know, I... And I mean little, like like toddler level. And it was, you know, and I always remember it being on and having these sort of vague positive feelings. But a lot of times the plots themselves did not grab my attention until people started shooting and dying and blowing up. Um, but I, one of the things that seized my attention as a kid was the trial scene. And I'm like, why is Riker being so mean to Data? Oh my God, they took his off all of a sudden i'm like asking all these questions and probably really annoying my parents who had who had just watched the same damn thing that i supposedly did but i just remember that like you know making me look up from my blocks or whatever and go oh even though i didn't fully understand what was going on but but responding to that the drama in that moment this is the point where we get to i think possibly the weakest sort of run of the series potentially oh yeah yeah. And we'll, we'll try and potentially, I mean, you guys will, may well have some stuff to say about these episodes and we may end up going on about them. But if we try and rattle through some of these a bit quick, quickly, just to get through the, sort of the, the dull part, because I mean, the, the next episode we've got is, is the Dauphin, or however you're supposed to pronounce okay. that. I can, I can sum up the Dauphin. It's 80% a mediocre Wesley episode and 20% an excellent Wharf episode. <laughs> That's, well, and I remember. Yeah. Is that another thing I remember as a as a child, like as a tiny child? Men do not roar; women roar. <laughs> My feelings on it were like, even as a teenager watching it, going, "Man, Wesley is so hard to watch. Like this is embarrassing." <laughs> in so, a way that is, like, yeah. oh, I can't get through it. And like, it's so naive at this yeah. point. It's, it's difficult God. to watch. It is, and then and then we have Contagion. Um, does uh, anybody care about Contagion? Okay, you know what? I'll 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 go to bat. You know, it's a fun little run and jump. Um, it's I do I do think it's interesting that they they brought in the USS Yamato just to retcon its registry number that was given in Where Silence Has Lease and then blow it out of the sky. Um, <laughs> but you know, and it. And then a lot of the the plot elements themselves haven't aged very well because people actually know how computers work now. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I always respond to the idea of, you know, the Federation and the Romulan ship are caught up in a, you know, in this this artifact from the civilization that they don't fully understand. 
And the Iconian gateways, believe it or not, um, do get called back in future episodes and they get their own little novel franchise about them. Um, and I believe there's, there's somewhat of a cult following around the Romulan commander in this episode. Um, I say she, she is the one, the one good thing about this episode. I yeah. felt she, the, the actor returns a couple of times actually playing a different Romulan commander in an even better episode we'll get to in season six. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, Contagion to me was very much one of those episodes. It, it, it was an episode. It happened. That's all I have to say on it. Agreed. Um, we've talked about the Royale a bit already, so we can skip over that one, I think. Um, Times Squared. They tried. So, they, yeah. They, they, they tried. The only thing I remember this is, uh, actually, before I say this, this is again a testament to how sort of forgettable some of these episodes are. Um, I'm having to double check which one's which. Well, yeah, has, I have. I think. It is one of those Star Trek time title episodes where you're like, that could be any episode that has yeah. a time loop or a phase problem or. Well, exactly that. In, in my mind, my brain was going, is that the one with the double Picard or is that the one with the three dacers? <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think this is the episode where they introduced the shuttle pod, which is at least kind of an interesting behind the scenes story. There is that. <laughs> but it's, just, it, it's again, it's just, it's, it's this run of just episodes that are just like, I mean, they're serviceable. They're not hard to watch, but they're not memorable. Icarus Factor is another good opportunity. Like, it's it's very telling, and like, I guess this is technically a spoiler, but I don't care. It's very telling that they put all this effort into introducing Kyle Riker and this whole conflict that he has with his son, and that he's phoned Pulaski, and this, that, and the other thing, and then we never see him again. <laughs> and it's just because yeah. it was... He was too mean and nasty and rotten, and then their conflict never actually got resolved. It was just that the 45 minutes were up, so they made Jonathan Frakes say, I love you. Yeah, yeah it was very... I, I didn't like the ending of that episode at all. He just sort of gave up. Okay. What you have just reminded me of, though, with mentioning about Riker's dad and Glasky, um, is uh, that in our sort of rush to sort of well, not have to talk about the Dauphin. Um, we completely neglected to mention that scene between uh, Riker and Guinan. Oh, yes. Which, okay. um, so, a uh, 10% good Riker episode, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I still think that, that, that scene, as just, just for pure hilarity, is probably my second favourite scene of season two, and we'll get to what my favourite one is later. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So, so, where do we get to? We've done the Icarus factor. Pen pals, I think, is beginning to improve at this point. I think it's, it's a little bit better. Yeah. It's the run like, from Francis to Icarus was rough. I think Pen pals yes. is an improvement over that. It feels like a later season episode to me, like of oh, season no. six or seven, where they were like, I don't know, just have Data do a thing. That's fine. Because like, they, they bring up this huge question of the Prime Directive, but then they all are just like, okay, let's break the Prime Directive. Now, I, I understand that it's, you know, uh, a spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, and, you know, make exceptions to be a good person sort of a thing. 
but it's just, it's sort of, it's still a little bit clumsy, but I agree that it is better than the three or four episodes preceding. It's interesting interesting that you say it feels like a later season episode, because to me, it feels almost like a quintessential second season episode, both because I think the B plot is very much like, again, exploring that life aboard the enterprise and, you know, and, and giving Wesley this sort of coming of age moment. Um, but then the, I think it's really an early case of the writers kind of grappling with the so-called new prime directive, which yeah. is the old prime directive, except being all being stricter and having this like this apocalyptic tone. Like if a planet is going to be destroyed, who are we to stand in the way? Uh, which is a terrible idea. Um, but it's not a good directive at all. Yeah, well, and and they were stuck with it, right? They 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 couldn't they couldn't quite write themselves out of it because it was built into the premise of the show and Gene, and then later Rick Berman kind of trying to be like Gene, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that they have the characters discuss it intellectually in a plausible way. I agree um, with that. And I, they, I mean. You say that like they, they, they were sort of written into the corner with it, though. They could very easily have just not written an episode where they had to violate the Prime Directive. Exactly. But that's the lazy way out. <laughs> but, they, were, they weren't really in a the corner there. They took the lazy way in, is, I think, is part of it. Like, it, it was, you know, it, it, it's not a bad episode. I don't, I don't dislike the episode. They were just, it felt less tight to me than a bunch of season two, which I think is what makes it feel like a season seven episode to me because it's season 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 seven you get some great episodes but then you also get some what episodes like what? okay it also to me and also i've not seen the latest series yet so i'm guessing right. yeah in terms of how data as a character develops it felt to me like the, the character of data as the sort of person who would quite flagrantly violate the prime directive by just having a pen pal on this planet feels like someone who's developed a lot more than data has at this point data at this point is still relatively not emotionless as such but relatively to the lesser and it's still more like a data a couple years down the line who's kind of mellowed out a bit yeah yeah i think it's um Yeah, it, there, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff here that they, they don't feel like they have time to really get into. And I think that's why they resort to the shortcut of, you know, they play the little girl's voice and everybody realizes that they're arguing in these intellectual terms about letting this little girl die. And it's an interesting, if possibly not fully intentional, comment on like, you know, a billion is a statistic, but the human nature is to empathize with a single person or a small group of people. Well, I guess you could say soft spoiler alert. They definitely revisit this exact concept later on in the show and they kind of expound on it and they offer additional arguments on both sides. And I think they get a little bit closer to something that's like, Oh, okay. So maybe Starfleet goes, Hey, captains do have some discretion and you know, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. 
Well, and there's some interesting payoffs too with this idea of of wiping her memory. So it gets mentioned a couple of times the Pulaski technique for wiping memory engrams. I think just a way to for them to say, oh, we didn't completely forget about this character. But eventually, it seems a little dated just because it feels like that's sort of in that's sort of always been in their toolbox. Um, and then apparently what some of the novels do, and I've not read them, um, is they make Sarjenka a recurring Starfleet character. Like she eventually joins Starfleet. And then years after that, she finds out about the fucking men in black routine they ran on her and ends up confronting Picard. And it's like, yeah, you go girl. That's shit. <laughs> uh, I might have to see those books out. That does sound quite interesting actually. Yeah, apparently it happens. The book is called Remembrance of Things Past. I'm just getting this from the the Candido review. I'll drop the link. I'll drop the link in the chat. I wonder how they came up with that title. <laughs> that was uh, that book I mean, the same way they came up with most Star Trek book titles by being very high. Yeah. <laughs> going, wait, what's it about? Oh, okay. oh and it has it has Commander Gomez in it as well. The uh, oh, recurring sure. character who almost was. Uh, actually, okay, I mean, yeah, I'm just gonna not say anything, but go yeah, and, and she knows, I, I spill the beans on some of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, okay. okay. I've had most of Lower Decks well and truly falls, so you don't worry. Oh, that's too bad, but I'm also so happy to hear that because it's deeply freeing for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it's gonna be like three years until I get to the point where I can watch it anyway, so... Yeah. No, 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 but like, but like, you have to understand that, like, we, we, I, she, she literally did her live tweets of Q-Who and Samaritan Snare, and I was talking about all this, oh, you know, she's going to be a recurring character and she just didn't quite work and now you know the actor is more or less like fucked off into oblivion and then like the next day lower decks hits and has her as like a major guest character in that episode with the original actor and i'm just like what is happening (laughs) i appreciate you Accidentally speaking that into existence. So <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think what, what's happening and what we've learned from these first two seasons of, of Lower Decks is that um, Michael Mayen has a weird obsession with the first two series of TNG. Because <laughs> because he he made his mark by doing the Twitter account uh, TNG season eight, <laughs> which was just oh was that him was it? Yes, that's him. That's how he got the job. Like it, it, after a fashion, no, he like he he made the the account and then he turned into a book deal and then like it just snowballed from there because it was so funny because he had such a knack for like taking the like dumb sitcom B plots that became such a thing in the next generation and then just like pushing them one degree further into obvious gags and then like putting that into the universe. That's that's a good one. I didn't know that. Characters, I mean, speaking of characters that started as kind of a gag, we are just about to come up on Q Who in our discussion, which is a seminal uh, milestone. There's so many ways you could talk about this episode. I have to ask, Sam, for your first time through, how did you you receive this episode? So, I have mixed opinions on this episode, if I'm honest. and I think part of this comes down to, like you say, it is, it is a seminal episode. It is, it's the beginnings of the Borg, the big bad, that effectively the big bad of the next generation, the one that defined the show. And it very much felt like it wasn't 
their finest outing. Like, obviously, I've not seen any other episodes with them in yet, but it, it, <laughs> it I'm not going to say it was weak because it was a good episode. It's a great episode. I loved, um, in particular, again, this, another one of my favorite scenes through this series was the confrontation between Q and Guinan. Um, that, that's an incredible scene. I, but I did feel like the episode to an extent is a victim of its own sort of hype because it, it, it's a good episode. I wouldn't say it's a phenomenal one. It's almost like a part one of a like 10 part ongoing series that only gets an episode every, you know, half a season or so. Yeah. And it, I could see seeing it as like watching only that episode, you know, as a, as a, as part of a watch through, I could see where you'd be like, okay, what's the next part? And they're like, eh, man. Uh, uh, wait <laughs> a season and we'll, yeah. we'll probably throw something at you. It'll be fine. I mean, but you know, to start with that, there's, this is definitely, it feels like the start of some of the serialization of Star Trek, which, you know, for better or worse, ends up being pretty, um, well, what divisive in the Star Trek community, right? There's uh, a line in parts of the Star Trek community where people go, I don't like New Trek because it's all serialized and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And they've even commented on that in Lower Decks. But it's, it's, I, I feel like having pieces of serialization in an episodic show is definitely the way to go. And I think that's, you know, probably for a lot of fans, we add a lot of retrospective strength to this episode when we think about it because we know of everything that comes after. So I think your your standpoint of it, I think, is totally fair, especially as a new viewer. Yeah, I think that that's part of like what sort of pushed me and inspired me to do this project in the first place as well is I, I don't have any nostalgia for Star Trek at all. I saw a couple of episodes of Enterprise as a kid and that's about it. So right. I, and especially with doing this podcast, and the reason that I wanted to get new people on every episode rather than having a set cast is that I find it really interesting to compare sort of me coming into this with no nostalgia and no sort of, I mean, obviously I have interest in it, but there's no connection to it. I mean, they're right. obviously building as I watch, but no connection to start with. And comparing that to people who've been longtime fans and have this sort of nostalgic sort of understanding of these episodes that I just don't have yet, and comparing those two sort of Varying viewpoints is a big part of why I, I did this in the first place. So the guidance scene that you mentioned, like, I, it, there is a way to watch that scene and view it as a little bit comical, right? Like, she definitely sort of slapsticky pops up from behind the yeah. bar there. She does hiss at him as well. Which... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, she's, I, she's an alien. Maybe they hiss. Uh, yeah. That, that thing of her popping up, like, I feel like, yes, it looks a little goofy, but if you really, really stop and think about the context, it actually makes sense, right? Because Q has just transported Picard to 10 forward and there's nobody else there. So in Q's head, he probably went, there will be nobody there when we get there because I'm moving them all out. So for the only way for her to conceal the fact that she was able to resist his moving out of the rest of the people was to physically duck down behind the bar. And that's why you yeah. actually see genuine shock on his face when she stands up. He's like, oh, 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 oh. what? Like, I, I did not expect this, you know? And it's it's almost one of our first human cue moments. Like, it, 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 I just, I really love that. And then, of course, the kung fu hands is just cool. Like, it's dumb, yeah. but it's cool. <laughs> but it's, it's, his, it's his reaction to it as well. He's, he's always, I mean, obviously in Farpoint and stuff, there's scenes where he's quite serious and quite nasty and stuff like that. But he's always been very in the sort of, what, this is the third episode he's in? Very mm -hmm. sort of 
trickstery and always quite aloof even when he's being a massive dick. Yeah. And he sees it and like the vitriol in his voice when he's like, like he calls it what's he called? What is a yeah, a creature, a, 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 it's not a goblin, but he's, he calls it something like that. Imp- and so he, yeah. he, he genuinely despises this woman. And it's, it hints at this whole other canon of history that could just be, you know, hundreds of millennia that we don't get, but it's like, it's, you know, we know it's there. And that's, that's just one of the strengths of this episode, I think, is that it actually plants a lot of seeds for you to ask your own questions about it and be invested in the series. Absolutely. I mean, it, it does that a lot with, with Dinan talking about her species as well and stuff. You like, it doesn't, and this is something that, that I said when I was watching this, I was, I was talking about sort of hoping that they never go into too much depth about her backstory because they give you just enough to sort of think about it and question it and try and make sense of it, but they don't sort of, they don't spoon feed you her story, which I really, really appreciate. Yeah, if this if this series were made now, there would be like a prequel series on Paramount Plus that was six episodes long. It was only about Guinan, which, as I'm saying it out loud, doesn't sound terrible. Actually, no, I would probably still watch it. <laughs> I would watch the heck out of it, uh, but it, it's not it's not 100 percent necessary. You're right. No. I agree. Can I say something? Yes. Yeah, sorry, you have been quiet for quite a while. Even been. Yeah. All y'all are crazy. Uh, this is the best Q episode and the best Borg episode. And if it wasn't for Measure of a Man, it would be the best season two episode. That is I, certainly a take. I will, <laughs> I will hard disagree that this is the best Borg episode, but I agree that it might be the best uh, season two episode. Maybe. All right. Measure so, of a Man is, is, is way up there. So, so here's my pitch. Um, Every subsequent time that they had to deal with the Borg, and of course they were always planning on sequels, but then they had to actually write them. And they had they had to <laughs> basically every new thing that was added to the Borg after this episode was a weakness for Starfleet to exploit so that they could win. And what makes this episode dramatic is because for the first time, you know, this galaxy class starship encounters hostile beings that it can't reason with or run away from or do anything with. And so while it was quite arguably necessary, and there are certainly superior action beats with the Borg in future episodes, you know, Q says something about their, the essence of what they are. And I feel like that's what is originates in this episode and then gets a little bit adulterated after that. And then as far as Q himself, you know, there are funnier Q episodes and maybe even ones with better dialogue. But I think this hits the perfect balance between Q being an actual threat. And like, if you say the wrong thing to him, you could end up never having existed versus Q having a personality and not actually being vengeful and not actually going to wipe out your whole species unless maybe you say the wrong thing too many times. And it's just something about this episode just walks both those tight ropes for me at once. And, you know, no matter how many times I watch it, I still have just as much fun. I could definitely agree with all of those points as far as being the best Q episode and you, they nail his character in a way that they rarely do because it's difficult to write the omniscient omnipresent, 
omnipowerful character, right? <laughs> um, but the on the Borg point, I would still resist because I I know that Best of Both Worlds Part One and Two are coming up, and regardless of any uh, adulteration of the concept, which I grant you. It, those two episodes, to me, stand above ninety percent of television in general. Oh, so, sure, they're classic, and, and that's, and that's, and I wouldn't say that. I don't know that I would say that this does for me, um, but it, you know, we can't get best of both worlds without this episode. So there's definitely something to be said for that. Keep an eye on your feeds as part two of our conversation on the Next Generation season two is coming next week. This episode of I've Never Seen was brought to you by our lovely followers over on Patreon, including Andrew McGray, Joshua DeVries, Matthew Wolf-Simon, Paul Stockton, and Rob Birch.